Good morning. Is this on? You hear me? Good. You can be seated. And as you're being seated, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So I'm going to begin by echoing something similar to what Bobby and Pastor Bobby and Pastor Mike said in the beginning of their uh, sermons. Incredibly thankful for our church. Um, I love all of you guys. I, my dad's going on year 28 here, and I'm 27 years old. So do the math there. Been here my whole life, and sincerely do love you guys. I'm thankful that the gospel is preached week in and week out um, from our pulpit. And that being said, it's an honor um, to be here today and to be in the pulpit. Um, so I'm thankful for the fellow elders uh, for bringing me in over the past few months. Um, also an honor to serve on an elder board with my dad. And I'm thankful that they stuck my sermon on Labor Day weekend, which has historically been the lowest attended Sunday of the year. <laughs> but it doesn't look like that today. Um, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, today's text will be verses 13 to 18. <clears throat> Scripture says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this body of believers, Lord. I thank you that your light is shining at the corner of 14 and Van Dyke, Lord, and I pray that that light would stay lit for years and years to come, Lord. Um, I'm thankful for uh, your son Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection and for this summer elder series that we've been able to go through the life in the person and work of Christ. I pray that your gospel would be heard with clarity and plainly this morning. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. pray this all in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, to be clear, I got her permission to tell a story. So in preparing for this sermon, I've had many conversations. One included my neighbor, who's a 69-year-old Christian Missionary Alliance pastor. Great guy. Great neighbor. He knocked on my door on a June Thursday night, and telling me he had backed into my car. So our neighborhood sidewalks early this summer were getting repaved. Um, so I was parked in the street. And he's, we're kind of on the end of the lot. He typically doesn't have anyone in the street behind him, right? So he wasn't looking and thought he backed into my car. 
So my neighbor and I went out and looked at it to get to look at it together, but there was no damage, thank the Lord, and naturally proceeded to get into conversation. And the fact that I was preaching in September came up, right? He's a pastor and that's what we began talking about. And we began talking about 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 4, uh, verses 13 to 18, the text from today. So while we were talking in my driveway, Jess had to run out to an appointment at the nail salon, right? She walked past us in the driveway and waved goodbye. Um, as our dialogue progressed, my neighbor eventually invited me to his 7,000-book library in his basement. Pretty cool guy. We chatted about our thoughts on eschatology, which I think this would be a good time to give you guys the definition. Eschatology, because I, I know, like I mentioned, I grew up in this church, so there's always these large words sometimes thrown out that, if you were like me and just sat for 18 years and didn't care to ask, you don't know what they mean. So eschatology is simply means the study of end times or pertaining to end times, right? So anytime you hear eschatology or eschatological, just remember, just means the end times. So we chatted about eschatology to his views on the rapture and what Paul means by Christians being caught up there in verse 17, to his system on how he prepares for his sermons and several other topics. In total, we were down there a little over an hour and a half. We walked upstairs, and as we were exiting his house onto the driveway, I looked up to see Jess, gosh, I love her, quickly hustling out of our house on the phone. She made eye contact with me and dropped her hands to her knees and began panning, out of breath like she had just run a marathon. I was a good 100 feet or so away from her, so I was, it's my neighbor across the street from us, so the top of his driveway near his garage to the top of our driveway near our garage, about 100 feet. Um, and so I wasn't sure what was going on. As my neighbor and I got close to her, closer to her, uh, I realized Jess's eyes were puffy. She had tears coming down her face, and she actually was out of breath. In the short 25 minutes since she got home from her nail appointment, and I wasn't there, she called my phone nine times. Remember, I, this all started with my neighbor coming and knocking on my door thinking I had, he had backed into my car, so I, my, my phone was in the house. She called my phone nine times, frantically ran through our neighborhood calling out my name. That's my best one. And then called my mom as she went into our, our, ba my, our basement afraid I was injured or worse. Um, as I hugged her to calm her down, my neighbor whispered into my ear, if she thought this was bad, imagine what the rapture would be like. <laughs> it was a funny comment, but I believe he was misunderstanding what the text is actually saying, thinking it would look like a scene out of the Marvel's end, Avengers Endgame when everyone just starts disappearing. So today we're going to look at what the text is actually talking about. So a little bit of background on going into today's text. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. Paul is the author, it says so in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and he writes this letter to the Thessalonians about A.D. 50. Okay? Um, the church at Thessalon Thessalonica is somewhat struggling. Jesus died and resurrected, defeating sin, and that was fresh on their minds. I mean, think about it. That, that was a crazy historical event that happened, right? Jesus died and resurrected, and that was only 50 years prior to this letter. So 
Someone in here probably can vividly remember a climactic event that happened in 1972. I'm sure they could, and that's 50 years. So it is fresh on their minds. And they weren't struggling with some egregious sin. It's clear from the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians that the church of Thessalonica had come to believe in and hope for the reality of their Savior's return. They eagerly awaited Christ's return, knowing it would be a climactic event in redemptive history, and they didn't want to miss it. The major questions that they had was, what happens to Christians who die before he comes, and do they miss his return? So Paul writes the words in verses 13 to 18 to encourage the people and answer these questions and to correct wrong understandings about these prophetic events. So first thing I want to do, I want to encourage all my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, Jesus is coming back. So since the empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection, God's people have always met awaiting his second coming. This is the point of Paul's writings here to the church at Thessalonica. Encouragement. Today we're going to look at three words or themes that Paul points out in these six verses. One is encouragement, two is hope, and three is victory. So I apologize, Dad, there's no alliteration there, but that's the best I could do. So for all the note takers out there, I'll repeat the points again. One, encouragement. Two, hope. And three, victory. So chapter four, leading into verses, today's text, um, the tone of Paul's language is pleasant and uplifting. Remember, you know, we've added numerical chapters and verse breakdowns to make it easier to study God's word, thank the Lord. But the early church would have read these letters straight through. So that same pleasant and uplifting tone from the first 12 verses of chapter 4 should be carried through when we read verses 13 to 18 today. Yes, Paul may not explicitly use the word encourage until the final verse of today's text, but don't lose sight that the entire tone of the chapter is one of encouragement. So look back at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to prove what I just said is true. So chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, verse 10 says this, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So early in this letter, Paul is already encouraging the Thessalonians to wait for his Son from heaven, hinting that Paul truly believed the, the return of Jesus was imminent, while also encouraging the church that in Christ we receive grace and are delivered from God's wrath. So look ahead to chapter 2, verse 12. Should be one page over, hopefully, or a scroll over. So chapter 2, verse 12 says this, We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom, and glory. So Paul had recently visited the church, and he's reminding the Thessalonians of his recent visit and how he encouraged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. So lastly, tracing the theme of encouragement in 1 Thessalonians leading into our text, look to chapter 4, just a few verses before today's text, verses 9 and 10. 
And it says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Again, they're not dealing with egregious sin. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you brothers to do this more and more. The church at Thessalonica were loving believers. Paul acknowledges this and encourages them to do it love more and more. In verse 10. So Christians and theologians can get so caught up in trying to decipher what 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 is saying, arguing over eschatology and views on a rapture. But please don't lose sight of this. This passage is meant to be read through a lens of encouragement and hope. There is no more, this is no more evident than reading how Paul ends verse 17. So we will always be with the Lord. It's a beautiful reality. This passage is written to encourage us that upon Christ's return, we will always be with him for the rest of eternity. Not only this, but it is also a passage of encouragement for those who have lost loved ones that belong to Christ. Verse 13 tells us not to grieve as others do who have no hope. Which leads us into our second point of today's sermon, hope. So we see in verse 13 that Paul is writing to those who are grieving the loss of loved ones that have placed their faith in Christ. Paul is imploring them not to grieve as the non-believers who have no hope. The people, in their ignorance, had concluded that those who die missed the Lord's return, and they were grieved over their absence at such a glorious event. So the death of a loved one brought great anguish to the church at Thessalonica. But Paul is telling, him, telling them in verse 15, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep providing them with hope and confidence that the saints in history will get to experience Christ's return. So I need to address the term used three times in today's passage, those who are asleep. It's used in verse 13, 14, and 15. The term asleep is used to describe followers of Christ who have died. It's not the only time the Bible uses the Bible, in the Bible, that dead Christians are referred to as asleep. So turn to John 11. John 11, and it'll be verses 11 to 14. John 11, verses 11 to 14 says this. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought what he meant was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. So we see again, Jesus calling Lazarus asleep prior to raising him from the dead. So I've slept with a fan on my entire life. Had to get dressed on that grind once we got married. And growing up, my dad would be the one that would wake us up, my brothers and I, up for school. Um, he was an early riser and my mom wasn't. So 
He wouldn't do so by shaking us or whispering into our ears, you know, it's time to get up. He'd simply turn off the fan, and I'd instantly wake up. Side note, I hate hearing a fan turn off, even if it's in the middle of the day now, because it's like hearing your alarm, you know, like people have an alarm clock and they'll have it, on, like if it shows up on a, on a commercial, how annoying that is. That's the same annoyance I get when the fan turns off. So don't turn a fan on or off around me, if you would. But to Jesus, awakening a dead believer is as easy as turning off the fan. So just as in Brother Bobby's sermon on Genesis 1-4, with the phrase, in him was life, to which Pastor Bobby said, I can't give you life, only the Creator can. God calls saints who are dead asleep because even life and death bows to the Creator. Christ has control over everything, even death. Jesus saying in John 11, 11, that he goes to awaken Lazarus, who was dead, is a picture of Jesus' deity and a foreshadowing to his own future victory over death. So in college, I attended um, University Reformed Church for my first couple of years there at Michigan State. And uh, the pastor was Kevin DeYoung. He's a well-known pastor, and he wrote an article in the Gospel Coalition uh, that summarizes our hope and grief better than I can, so I'm just going to read it verbatim. Everyone has affliction. Both Christians and non-Christians mourn. They hurt. They suffer. Loved ones die. Tragedy happens. Everyone grieves. Christians too. We are not immune to suffering. We are not somehow above it all, as if we were promised in this life nothing but success and ease and happiness. We grieve as much or more than anyone, but not as those who have no hope. The Christian cries differently. Our tears are not tears of hopelessness. Death is not the end. There is a hope we have that the world does not have. To be sure, there will be fine-sounding platitudes at any funeral you attend. And sadly, the empty, contentless cliches and platitudes show up at Christian funerals too. But we have something more than inspiring words or some vague notion about a place up in the clouds or singing with angels or looking up at Grandpa as he watches down over us. We have a firm hope that is grounded in the work of Christ. We have a hope in the midst of affliction, because our God raises the dead. So now let's address verses 16 and 17. Back to today's text, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. We'll just read them again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Jesus is victorious. He's the conquering king. In Mike's sermon, we saw the Holy Spirit's descent on Jesus in his baptism. And in verse 16, we see Jesus' return in victory. But Western civilization loves to dramatize this end-time scenario. No, that doesn't sound like Americans, right? We don't love to dramatize anything. Uh, 
they use books like the Left Behind series and various apocalyptic-type movies alluding to a rapture, including, like I had previously mentioned, the Marvel Avengers Endgame. In verse, verses 16 and 17, Paul is really just borrowing imagery from biblical and political sources to enhance his message. So turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Sorry, I know there's some flipping today. You're going to have to bear with me. But think about the, so think about, first off, think about the languages in, used in verse 16. It's very, very similar to Moses coming down Mount Sinai, Sinai with the Torah, right? So, uh, so, trumpet sounds, voice of an archangel, bright. You know, it's very similar. But it's also similar to what we get in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Scripture says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at, that, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus' second coming defeats death once and for all. And he does so giving believers a new immortal body. At Jesus' coming or appearing, those who are still alive will be changed or transformed so that their mortal bodies will become incorruptible and deathless. So that's the biblical sources Paul is alluding to that would again been fresh on the minds of the Thessalonians when they read this letter from Paul. But what about the political sources that he draws on? This is where I think we start to get the overdramatization of um, this, and let's correct that. So historically, when an emperor visited a colony or province, um, the citizens would go out to meet that emperor in open country and then escort him into the city. Okay, so the Thessalonians would have been keenly aware of this practice. And in verse 17, Paul's image of the people meeting the Lord up in the air should be read with the assumption that the people will immediately turn around and lead the Lord back to the newly remade world. So we're clear on that. Before going any further, I need to clarify something from today's text. Maybe you're sitting there a little confused with verse 14 on what exactly it means when it says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If you're not confused at all, I'm happy for you, but I'm not as smart as you. And needed some clarification. So, similar to Andrew in his sermon, I needed to look at other translations to help paint a clearer picture. So I love the ESV translation for the beginning of verse 14, saying, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's plain, easy to understand. Jesus died and rose again. 
Where I got a little thrown off in the ESV translation was the remainder of the verse stating, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Specifically, bring with him. That phrase led me to a different connotation than the translator may or may not have intended. To me, I like the NCV translation for the second half of verse 14, which says, God will raise with Jesus those who have died. The point of Paul's letter here is to encourage the church that the believers who have passed away will still get to experience the climactic event of Christ's return. I thought the NCV translation explained that a little bit better for my own understanding by using the phrase, God will raise with Jesus those who have died, rather than God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Jesus died and rose again, and here Paul states that the fallen saints will rise with Jesus in his second return. So the reason I make that clarification um, was I think it helps to better understand verses 15 and 16. So in verse 15, when it says that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then at the end of verse 16, it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Drawing on the imagery Paul uses from political sources in verse 17, we now know that the fallen saints will be with us in Christ's return to meet the Lord in the air and return to the newly remade world. That was the point of Paul's encouragement. And the promise Paul leaves with them at the end of verse 17 is, again, we will always be with the Lord. From that point forward, we're going to be with the Lord for eternity. Anticipation and readiness for Christ's return should be part of our daily thinking. Remembering the day of the Lord and believing that, that it is imminent should heighten our attentiveness to life. Faith in the certainty of Christ's promised return should guide our choices and actions daily. The Thessalonians lived their life as if Jesus would return today, which is why they needed encouragement from Paul in the first place. So the question each of us must ask ourselves is, am I prepared for Christ to return right now? Am I prepared to, for Christ to return right now? Am I placing my faith in Jesus alone to save me? And what is faith? We've been defining faith um, for a while now as it involving three aspects. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You must first understand the gospel. You can't be saved without hearing the word preached. And what are the components of the gospel? First, God is holy and cannot commune with sin. That's an established given. Man, as we do in our model in our liturgy, and um, Pastor Brett took us through, Man is dead in our trespasses and sin. And through the person and work of Jesus alone, which is what we've been preaching through in this elder series, humbling himself into the form of a man, born of a virgin Mary, living the perfect sinless life, dying on the cross, and raising on the third day to defeat death. Through him alone can we be saved. God is holy Man is sinful, and Jesus bridges that gap. 
So that's the knowledge. That's the components, the basic components of the gospel. But it doesn't stop by simply knowing the gospel. You must ascend it to be true. So there's that old adage, you can miss heaven by 18 inches, uh, meaning your mind to your heart. You can understand the gospel, but in the heart being the actual soul, not your helping heart. But Meaning you can understand the gospel, but unless you believe it to be true, you cannot be saved. So you have historians that will use the gospel as a historical text, but they don't believe it's true. They don't ascend it to be true. They cannot be saved. And finally, you've got to trust in the gospel for your salvation. The beauty of it is that we're placing our trust in Jesus alone to save you. It's nothing we can do. Eschatology is important. Trying to decipher the haziness in the chronological order of end-time events is a debate worth having. But don't lose sight of the beautiful truth of Jesus' return. We're to find encouragement and hope in the promise that Jesus will return in victory. And from the moment Christ returns, we will always be with the Lord for the rest of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son Jesus, Lord, that he humbled himself to the form of man, tempted and tried as we all are, yet without sin, that he lived the perfect life, he died the brutal sinner's death, and was raised on the third day to defeat sin. Father, we acknowledge that he will return in victory. And we ask that if there is anyone in here today, Lord, that is not placing their trust in Jesus alone to save them, Lord, that today would be their day of salvation. That you would take and turn that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Encourage us with your word. Help us to find our hope in you through the victory of your son Jesus on the cross who defeated death and will come again to make all things new. Pray this all in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.